When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode, sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and miniseries. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back John Higgs to discuss his book, KLF, Chaos, Magic, Music, Money. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by John Higgs, the author of The KLF, Chaos, Magic, and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nate. Great to be here. And so the KLF is a band that's special to me for an odd reason, because <laughs> completely oblivious to them during their heyday. I had no idea they existed. And yet I was an ardent reader of the Illuminatus trilogy and Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger. Oh, yes. And had I known they existed, this was my fantasy band. These guys did <laughs> that I think any fan of Robert Anton Wilson would imagine doing you know the media manipulation the uh aspects of it that are magical but the thing about robert anton wilson for people who aren't familiar was it, it's almost a meta magic mm. system where he doesn't even premise that magic exists he assumes that you're a skeptic and that there's nothing to this but head games and yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I met Robert Anton Wilson and asked him about the KLF and was amazed that he'd never heard of them himself. 
he didn't know about them. He didn't know about them burning the million pounds. He didn't know them about them calling themselves the justified agents of Moo Moo, which is from his work and from his book. And it was in the days before the Internet, you know, where strange things could happen around the world. And there was no reason why people would, would get to hear of it. Yeah, and, and I was in the same boat. Um, I wasn't paying especially close attention to the dance scene at the time. And, and being in Texas, I was pretty oblivious to what was happening on the British pop chart. So I, I missed the whole thing. But let's, you've already alluded to the fact that they burned a million pounds. Give us the, the quick 30 second who is the KLF elevator? Uh, the KLF were the best selling singles band in the UK in 1991. They were a big deal. But they were odd. They were they the actions didn't really make sense to anyone. Uh, people couldn't quite grasp where they were coming from or what they were trying to do. And that sort of built and built and built until, as you say, uh, they you know they took the, the million pounds that they'd earned from all these records and they and they went up to an island off the coast of Scotland. And in the middle of the night, um, they just set fire to it all. They they burned all their money and they couldn't really say why that was. That's the thing that really got me. They couldn't explain it. And it was like one of those acts that is um, is, is, is a clue that, the, that you're missing something. Right? It doesn't really fit into your view of the world and how things are. You know, those th- those are the sort of things that uh, are worth paying attention to. Those are the things that are uh, a clue that you don't quite have the full picture. And and it's a fascinating tale because they had been perceived as these incredible media manipulators. They owned their own record label. They mm-hmm. managed themselves. Uh, Bill Drummond, one of the two principals, along with Jimmy Cotty, had already managed bands, Echo and the Bunnymen and the Teardrop Explodes that were part of the neo-psychedelic scene coming out of Liverpool in the early 80s. So he was an experienced music biz professional. They were... Pretty much the only band analogous to them that I can think of would be Fugazi in the American underground punk scene. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. I was trying to think of American analogies for them, and I was coming up really short. I can't, they're, they're, they're kind of unique, I think. Very, and you because you couldn't do what they did with the British pop charts as an American independent. The, the American America is just too big. And, and yeah, Fugazi would not have a, a number of number one hits, you know. In the yeah. main in the main chart, they'd just be too you know out there, I guess. And but they did have very high profit margins because they did slug their way into the top 100 in album sales. And ah. their own um, producer and, and distributor and, and and record label, they kept the profits from that. So they had very good profit margins, but they had nothing like the scale of the KLF, where you had multiple top 10 hits. I think that had, yeah, multiple number threes and number five. And and sold six million uh, copies. Uh, you know, so the KLF was even more in the catbird seat, and they manipulated the British media in a way that Fugazi never manipulated the American media. Where, because, well, tell us about the justified ancients of why they came out of the gate and how they t- triggered so much media attention to that project. Okay, well, that was that was the first name that uh, these two people started working together as these two people being Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti. Um, And it was it was kind of like a 
a hip hop thing, an early hip hop thing, and it was based around samplers. And this was about 1988 when the technology was new and just appearing, and the kind of the the, the rules of the game hadn't quite been established yet. Um, to be honest, it reminds me a lot of AI now. How AI is being used by musicians? No one really knows, you know, what's out of order. No one really knows what's will be accepted and, and what will become normal. And so there are a lot of people playing with it and doing strange, strange things. And sampling in the early days was a similar sort of thing. It wasn't quite used quite how it is now, in which you know you'll get a uh, you know a really good beat or something and build up a song around it or something like that. Um, the Justified Ancients of Moomoo, they were taking huge chunks of the Beatles and ABBA, you know, because they were the Beatles and ABBA because of what they represented. Their thinking was a lot more. Um, situationist they were thinking in terms of detourments as it was the, the notion that you you take the culture that's sort of forced on with you and you mess with it and you you play with it and you sort of throw it back at, at people um and so you know some of their records it's, it's when you say they sample abba it's not how we think of it now it's basically they took the entire almost the almost the entire record and you know wrapped over it it's 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 um it's outrageous to think that they would have got away with putting that out um themselves and needless to say lawyers particularly abba's lawyers were really not happy about the whole thing uh and so they had their first album that they put out in 1987 abba's lawyers came down on it like a ton of bricks and and all copies had to be burnt and that was uh that was uh uh, it, it's 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 it sort of sets the scene i think for the following five years of what they were doing the name the justified ancients of mumu from robert anton william uh, robert anton wilson's work um they're the they're the forces of chaos at work in the music industry that's the name they took on themselves you know they they uh were very much enacting this sense that um the music industry was order and they were chaos yeah that runs that runs through it um but chaos is powerful but i think abba's lawyers are more powerful unfortunately <laughs> but it's because their initial single even before they released it got so much attention in the british music press and then of course when abba sued them they got even more attention than not just in the british music press but in the mainstream media in the business media and and, and just general interest media mm. uh, their profile was immediately elevated i mean they were um you know because and and they they were along with mars who did pump up the volume and and there were a number of hits along these lines that were sort of like what they saw what they were doing was hip-hop they thought they were making hip-hop but they were never really yeah. accepted by the american hip-hop scene and neither were you know groups like mars but there's just this brief window in 1987 where these brits are playing with hip-hop and making a global impact and they're very much on that scene but then something big happens in the british music scene and they jump onto that um yeah talk about um the the time lords before the transition to rave Actually, the cue first. So let's hear our first song. And this is the number one hit that they uh, got in their next incarnation, The Time Lords. This is Doctrine the Tardis.
And that was the KLF and their incarnation as the Time Lords doing Doctor in the TARDIS, which is a single that didn't even age well in its, in its day. And now the uh, reputation of Gary Glitter that was sampled and even guests appeared in some of their videos, it's even it's aged even more badly. But tell us how they manufactured a number one hit. Oh, it's <laughs> such a strange thing, that record, isn't it? It was um, it was it was initially it was done uh, out of respect and admiration for Delia Derbyshire, who was the woman who created the original electronic Doctor Who uh, theme music in 1963, uh, which at the time was, you know, a hugely original and utterly unique and people have never really heard anything like it. So it's a bit, it's a bit of a classic in, in that scene. And they, the idea was, well, we'll update it. We'll do a new dance version of it, but they couldn't really fit a four, four beat to the doctor who theme music. So they were, you know, but they're tenacious. They try stuff. And then the notion that, well, the only beat that they could really fit to it was the glitter beat. So they stick that on and and they're working away at it. And then after about a day, they just realize just right. how how awful and how terrible this this record is. At least how it sounds to them. You know, I I, I view view it as one of the about the only novelty record it's okay to like. You know, I I, I think a lot of people have a lot of love for this record whilst um, not being blind to how ridiculous it is, you know, just how, how insane it is. Um, and uh, yeah, they put it out in the name, the time Lords and it, it became a number one. And because it was entirely independent, you know, they, they, they made a lot of money from it. They, they, it made them quite rich. So what they did was they, they uh, went away and they wrote a book called the manual, how to have a number one, the easy way, which explained to people how they too, could have a number one and i think if you if you followed their steps and um didn't have a number one record you could get your money back on the book it was it was done in those terms and there were uh bands there was um a european band called edelweiss who followed exactly uh their steps to the letter and they produced a, re a record called we are edelweiss which had yodeling in for some reason and that was number one across europe so it did actually work um and it was a it's it's typical of them to 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 come up with something that's hugely successful, but use it to sort of, you know, open up the music industry or deconstruct the music industry or just um, uh, shift the power around, I guess. I think that, that's a lot of what they were doing, that, that notion that they're shifting the power around. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we're massively successful, although they also got to experience the, the the hangover of having a number one novelty hit, which is people get tired of the song and it goes away very quickly. But they, yeah. they, I, I want to get to two things, but, but let's do the white room project first, because this is really kind of the first time they burned in the pounds. What was the white room project? What were they trying to do and what did they come back with? Well, a road movie is the, is the simple answer to that. They'd, they'd made a lot of money uh, from that novelty record and they decided to spend it making a, a road movie. Um, and they'd spent, uh, yeah, I think it was about a million pounds uh, f uh, filming themselves, driving around uh, parts of Spain. And uh, they sort of got the footage back and, and they realised it was just very boring and they didn't really have um, anything that anyone would, particularly want to sit and watch, you know, to, uh, to sit through. So, yeah, that's, that's, 
money gets squandered a lot in this in this story. Uh, but it became sort of it sort of fitted in with um, uh, an ambient sort of chill out scene was was appearing in uh, in out of the rave scene. You know, at the end of the night, there would usually be like a chill out room in a club where it was a lot of you know Brian Eno or. Um, um, bands like the Orb were starting to come through um, uh, with this sort of ambient house sort of thing, and it kind of fitted in in with that. So um, even though it was never really, it was never finished, it was never released. It was a, it was one of those white elephants in in the sort of music history story. Um, it is significant in that the music they started to write for it was the music that we would all come to know as the klf and which would have such an impact uh in the near future yeah and i i'll introduce the what happened with rave because between their initial singles and and, and this quasi hip-hop or an attempted british attempt at making hip-hop which they were not the only exponent of there were a number of groups that that hit with these sample based records but then rave and i've done a whole mini series multiple mini series on on the history of, of electronic dance music it's a rave because massively popular the following year in england yeah American house and techno from Chicago and Detroit just explode on the British underground scene. And the KLF are able to step seemingly effortlessly into that scene. And not only do they pioneer the chill out or the ambient sound or the you know, chill out was the name of their the album, but they hit repeated anthemic dance hits that are not only hits in the, at, at the rave scene and the, the clubs, but on the charts Tell mm. us about this phase of their career and how they rode um, the the rave, and, and it was more than a trend, but but the, the zeitgeist of that era into the top of the pop charts. Yeah, I mean they they started by doing um, a few, I guess you call them pure dance records, um, the pure trance series they they tend to be called, um, which which are great, which are which are really good and were a large um, had a huge impact on on the rave scene, but it was that shift to what they called stadium house, which was turning uh, that music into pop songs into hits, um, into structured so- songs, uh, which really made their name. There was there was a, a run of singles, um, 3 a.m. Eternal, The Last Train to Transcentral, Last Train to Transcentral, uh, What Time Is Love. Uh, the, these songs, they were they were massive over here. They were so big because they, they sounded fresh. They, they still do. They still sound great. They, they were wonderful, wonderful dance records. If I can interrupt, let's go ahead and hear What Time Is Love by the K. What time is love from the KLF? And like you say, I, I, this stuff just holds up incredibly well. It's it's yeah. it's it's classic material. Uh, 
very, very indicative and representative of its age, which is a very historically significant age in music now. So, Absolutely, yeah. So they've established themselves, you know, initially there are these media manipulators doing these records that are more statements, you know, almost political statements about sampling in the music business. That Yeah, I, d I don't think they would have described themselves as media manipulators. I don't think that's how they saw themselves. I think they what they were trying to do was something that was artistically interesting. But the results are just so odd and strange that the press sort of they, they were trying to find a way to pigeonhole it really or a framing to to put around it and and this notion that they were doing it for the attention appealed to the press because it made the press seem more important in the music industry than perhaps they were and it sort of it sort of followed them around the notion that um uh, yeah they were they were arch media manipulators that they knew what they were doing but it doesn't fit their story at all it really had no plan they there was a real lack of um clear-eyed thinking about what they were doing and where they were going it was much more instinctive it was much more um reacting to the time that shift between hip-hop to rave music that you uh, we're talking about earlier is a good example. You know, it, it rave just happened, so they just followed. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a clever plan or anything like that. It was, it was just the right thing to do at the time. It was all very instinctive. So yeah, so I don't, I don't think they would have. Uh, in fact, I think I'm, I think it annoys them when people say that they were media manipulators and um, these things were pranks and stuff like that that they did. Uh, that's not how they saw it. And I think I think that the crisis they come to is is amplified by that, and 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 the reaction that they didn't anticipate to to burning the million pounds in the end is part of that. But the press loved them because the press loves people they think are savvy, and and yeah. loved the idea that they were cynical manipulators. And, and from the surface or from the outside, it certainly appeared that way. Although the music spoke for itself, the music had a true quality. I mean, they're moving people on the dance floor on their own merits. So, mm. um, you know, there and there and there was a recognition of that. I think I think that the the you know going back and reading reviews and press about the the early um, Dancing Queen record and Doctor and the Tardis that that the press understood that they were important theoretically and they were fun. Yeah. And they were good to write about, you know, yeah. if you're a journalist, they were great to write about those early, early records don't hold up to the extent that the, the stadium house trilogy we were just talking about do now. So it was, it wasn't really the quality of the music that was attracting the press. It was the sort of the oddness of the ideas and things like that. But from all that, they just, they just reached that stage um, where, I don't know, it's like something clicked and uh, they just, they just became masters of what they were doing and what they what they were doing was just great it was quite unexpected really i don't think anyone had, had had that down as a likely option but they just made some brilliant brilliant pop records yeah and and the fact that they are in this whirlpool of making music they're living in a squat officing in a squat they're mm -hmm. they're manufactured and sent to the squat from which the it's then shipped out to stores they're um, living the lifestyle, which involves a lot of late nights and drugs, and yeah. they're they're in the center of this vortex. And so, from the outside, they appear to be these these shrewd, savvy media manipulators who are then masterfully also manipulating the music scene and and 
yet, from their perspective, they're much more like Mickey Mouse and Fantasia, the, the magician. <laughs> yes, exactly that. I think that's a perfect analogy. <laughs> yeah, so talk about that. How did the, the broomsticks get out of control? Like, what, what were the things that, that caused them to feel like they were losing control of what was happening? It's, you know, fame is a strange and uh, corrosive thing and attention uh, and uh, suddenly being the center of everyone's, um, you know, uh, when you have it, people uh, are attracted to it for the wrong reasons. It's a it's a it's a very strange world. But they were um, they were kind of a bad influence on each other, I think, is one way of putting it. They. um they had almost, uh, they described it as almost a sort of telepathic way of thinking in which they always knew what the other meant and they always agreed with each other. And what, sometimes all it can take is someone to agree with you, to push you just a bit too far in whatever direction you really shouldn't be going. Um, uh, and if, it, if they were just themselves alone, I don't think they would have got that out there or unusual or, or strange, but because both of them were there and both of them could see in each other's eyes, just the delight at the, the ideas of the sort of things they were doing. It's, it's the uh, things I'm talking about are to give one example is when they flew, uh, a lot of the British music press up to the Isle of Jura, um, in Scotland again, where they'd set up a giant wicker man and they'd, um, out in the, out in the countryside and they'd, set up a giant sound system and they'd taken load they brought loads of uh, ecstasy and mdma with them and they they were all in these robes with horns coming out of their foreheads and this really strange like pagan ceremony then followed at midsummer in, in 1991 which uh, ended with the wicker man being sort of burnt down and everyone um on a lot of drugs having a very strange experience and this wasn't really to promote anything it wasn't you know we're doing this because we've got a new record out or something like that. they just invited the press up to this um strange strange ceremony um uh, and it's the sort of thing that most bands wouldn't really do it don't really it doesn't really make an awful lot of sense but both of them got it. Both of them could see the appeal of of doing of doing that um and so they they a lot of what they would do they did is is because it, they're just a bad influence on each other yeah that's the easiest way to put it really they you put them together and um they'll the things that might just be a passing fantasy or a daft idea for most people would come and manifest Let's let's hear a little bit about passing fantasies from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, how the KLF lost all that goodwill that they had accrued with the media and the public. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So the KLF has this incredible run as singles artists in Britain, and some of the hits are, are, are global. And mm. they are admired and respected. They're, they're uh, seen as artistically significant uh, in, the, in the dance music scene. They're seen as culturally significant. They're seen as they're respected as these operators who are outside the British music industry and the global music industry, and yet are inside it. They're, they're manufacturing and, and distributing and selling lots of 12-inch singles, and they're making lots of money. They, they're uh, not giving 20% to a manager. They're not giving 80% mm. to a record label. They're, they're rolling in the cash, and you know people respect this. Now, I, I want to go back a little bit, actually, to the sort of the beginnings of Jimmy Cotty. He had been in a band called Brilliant, Hmm. Who producers of the brilliant single, and what did he learn from them? Oh, that was uh, Stock Aitken and Waterman. I don't know um, how significant those producers are to an American audience. Are they are they known over there? Or well, Rick Astley is very hmm. known in America, and Kylie Minogue is known a little bit. And I think it's easy to explain that Saw Stock Aitken and Waterman were the dominant pop producers in England that they took high energy dance production techniques and packaged them, combined that with pop stars like Rick Astley and Kylie Minogue and became ubiquitous in England in from the mid to the late eighties. Absolutely massively commercially dominant and are probably the most representative producers of the Margaret Thatcher neoliberal Money and success is everything ethos. So it's a very odd that definitely be kind of the mentor of half of the KLF. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a that's a great description of it. And it was it was um, it was samey. It was there was so many of their records in the charts, and they all sounded the same. It was um, it was like cutty cutty cucker sort of uh, uh, thing. So. There was a lot of in in the alternative music scene. They were a, a bit of a hate figure. People really dis disliked their sound. Really, even though some of their records, things like "You Spin Me Round Like a Record" by Dead or Alive, are amazing. You know, they were not seen in, in a positive light. Um, and yet, the band that Jimmy Corti had been in with Youth from Killing Joke of all people, um, they had them as a producer. And uh, and Jimmy Corti was able to sort of study. 
um, what they were doing and how they were sort of making these records, as was Bill Drummond, who was the manager um, of the, sorry, he was the A&R man uh, from the Warner's label who had signed Brilliant. Um, so these were, they were both figures who'd been around the music industry a while, you know, they weren't like new young kids trying to break in. They'd, um, they'd seen all different sides of the music industry and they'd seen what it did to people and they'd seen, you know, um, how how things work. So, they, so when they started working together, they were a little bit um, not jaded, but they were they were certainly not uh, wide eyed optimists. They were they were very cynical about the about the music industry. Uh, but at the same time, they did have a love for it. You know, there was part of them that loved what Stock Aitken and Walkman were doing to to uh, to the, to those records. Um, it was a complicated love hate relationship with the music industry that they had. I think. Yeah, and and it, I think having seen that up close, and both having experienced, you know, made attempts at, at music biz success that failed, or uh, Drummond's Drummond's role as manager, he was pretty successful with Echo and the Bunny Man and Teardrop Explodes. Honestly, mm-hmm. not the most successful manager, but but definitely a successful professional. But so they had this background of experience, and they had seen. You know, like you said, they weren't newbies. They weren't young kids. They weren't, you know, like the young Beatles looking for some kind of ego and sexual. Yeah. They were past that. And yet, and, they, and they've got this very real and visceral understanding and appreciation for the negative aspects of the music business. Why do they feel increasingly trapped the more successful they are? And why was being nominated for a Brit Award kind of the last straw for them psychically? It's because when they were successful, they were welcomed by the music industry. You know, it it doesn't matter how much you you may posture or or um, try and fight the the man, as it were. Um, if you're successful, the man will open his arms uh, and welcome you. And it felt very much when they were nominated for the Brit Award for the best band that they that the industry was trying to claim them. That's that's how they that's how they saw it. Uh, and they were because they'd had so many uh, successful records that year, they were booked to open the Brit Awards, which is the, a big industry, you know, a shindig um, o- over here. It's, it's broadcast on TV. It's, it's a big, big deal. And rather than, you know, just turning up and, you know, miming to, to one of their crowd pleasing uh, hits, they, they went away with the grindcore band, uh, Extreme Noise Terror, and reworked, uh, I think it was What Time Is Love, uh, into this, uh, at the time, what was seen as quite unlistenable. You know, the, the whole grindcore scene, we got, we, we get it now. You know, it, you could hear it, it used to be, you know, to, on adverts for energy drinks or, or something like that. Music that extreme, we're kind of familiar with. But at the time, in, certainly on mainstream British TV, you didn't hear music like that at all. It was it was quite incomprehensible. Um, and so they, they did this performance uh, where they got machine guns. Bill Drummond had this machine gun, which he was just sort of firing at the British music industry. Um, but what they wanted to do, what their original plan was to um, dismember a sheep live on stage. They wanted to do something so horrible that they could never be forgiven for it. You know, uh, they, they, would, they would sort of exile them 
from the music industry immediately and there would be no way back that was their sort of original plans uh, the problem was extreme noise terror were hardcore uh, vegetarians and animal rights activists so they were really not having <laughs> this at all so they had this dead sheep in the back of the van while all this was happening and at the end of the end of the evening it was sort of dumped with a few buckets of blood over the steps where the after party had been which wasn't really quite uh, the statement that they wanted to make but it kind of gives you um an indication of how being accepted by the music industry sort of went to the core of everything they were everything they were and everything they were against you know it's horrified them slightly um uh, then the fact that they they won the best band, but they won it jointly with Simply Red was like the, there was a last straw. It was like, the, you know, the, the industry was saying, you're the best a band can be. You're as good as Simply Red. And they didn't take that well. <laughs> they took that very badly, I think. Lisa, I, 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 <laughs> I went to high school with a guy who had red hair and was taunted with the name. Names <laughs> actually hung somebody out a second floor window for a few seconds to get him to stop. So yeah, oh, wow. <laughs> take lightly. But let's go ahead and hear seconds of uh, the KLF and Extreme Noise Terror playing "What Time Is Love" at the Brit Awards in Was the KLF with extreme moist hair and a dead sheep that you can't hear uh, doing a version of What Time Is Love at the Brit Awards. And so they still didn't quite get the response they wanted. People were nonplussed by their antics uh, at this show, but they weren't quite exiled from the business. So what was the next step to deconstruct? The next step was to give up, basically, was to, was to split up to quit to end the band um which they did shortly afterwards i think they had done more recording with extreme noise terror and there was plans for an album called the black album that never never appeared but um really from the from that point it was kind of over um and they were it, it was more mental and physical exhaustion i think as much as anything else they were in quite a bad way at this point they'd been uh, you know burning the candle at both ends for a long time they'd been working so hard they'd been constantly you know if not working on a new video or working on a new remix or you know or, or just shifting you know boxes of albums into the back of the van and it was it was just constant um it was just constant work essentially for the last few years they really were burnt out uh, and i say when they quit they deleted their entire back catalogue, um, which must have cost them 
much more than the million pounds that they they went on to burn. I think estimates about five million or something. Um, so you can then no longer get their music, you know, and you not hear it uh, on movie soundtracks, on game soundtracks, on um, you know, on adverts or or compilations or anything. And all the sort of the normal afterlife of songs that were that successful these didn't have they just sort of disappeared really they just kind of stopped being played and they kind of were forgotten about for for a long time and they probably would have successfully been forgotten if it wasn't for the fact that they then went and burnt that million pounds and they don't just plunge out and try to burn a million pounds tell us about the k foundation and their attempts to manipulate or interact with the modern art scene yeah once they stopped being the klf um they continue to work together which in itself is strange i'm not i can't think of any other examples of musicians who are in a band and who split up but who then go on to do non-music things together only married couples in bands are the only examples i can think of and they decided they were going to form an art foundation called the uh, the K2 Art Foundation. Um, and a lot of their thinking about art was tied with the concept of money. Uh, and in, in the 90s, um, the art world in the UK was kind of being taken over by the financial services industry for want of a, a better way of putting it it was it was people like uh, david um sorry damien uh, hurst became incredibly rich and incredibly successful because certain collectors particularly the, uh, the sarchis uh, would promote their work and they, it, the art world really became about success and money and um, everything the art world shouldn't be it was kind of it was it was loud it was um hollow um a lot of it was not very good but it was about sensation and spectacle and attention and press and um the art world was going that way so it sort of made sense that they would try and produce artworks that question this and looked at the value of money so they did something like they nail i can't remember the exact amount to um it might have been it might have been a million pounds to a, a plank of wood. They just nail these notes onto the wood and they were going to sell that for like half a million pounds. And the idea was that you could then just take the money and double your money and skip off happily. Or if you kept it as an artwork, its value might then increase, increase and increase. And it, it sort of raised sort of those sort of sort of questions. Um and so and they were also as antagonistic towards the art world as they had been to the music industry and the art world is not happy about things like that the art world needs a sense of um you know it has the power to say what is art and what isn't uh, and it, it doesn't let in anyone the art world it's a very um it's, it's, a, it's, it's a sort of glamour uh i mean that in a sort of magical sense of, ex of respectability or, or or being accepted as an artist that is quite heavily guarded and controlled um and they they, they really don't like people who had some other career before they became artists that's considered unacceptable so certainly people who had been musicians 
they couldn't then become artists and be accepted because they never really um, uh, be, yeah, be accepted in, in, in those sort of terms. So when the KLF start to come up and they're doing all these, producing these, these works about money and things like that, Artwell just really didn't want to know. They, they were not um, queuing up to put on an exhibition of their work, put it, put it that way. They were sort of out in the cold slightly. Um, and that just sort of pushed them more and more together and made their thinking more and more extreme until um, they reached the point where I think they, they realized they wanted to just burn all the money that they'd made as the KLF because that was the last thing that sort of tied them to the music industry. Um, you know, they, they'd walked away, they'd stopped the music, but they still had all this money and if they could just get rid of it. And the idea of just going up to the Isle of Jura and doing it in this, this deserted boathouse was very deliberately not to do it in an art gallery where people go, oh, I know what that is. It's a work of art. It's a piece of art or it's an attempt at art. It might be crap art or whatever, but it's an attempt at art. Um, they didn't want that. They didn't want it to just be seen as an attempt to make some art. Um, and I think, I think they achieved that. I think what they did was so upsetting and strange and disturbing. It is very hard to label it or to put a frame around it. And it certainly was for me. I wasn't, you know, I was aware of the KLF. Um, I wasn't a huge fan at the time. It wasn't really my, I wasn't really into the dance scene at the, at the time. Um, but the moment they, I read about them just burning all this money, it just, I couldn't process it. I just, I, I, I couldn't believe that people would do things like that. And it didn't make sense. And there was no answer to it. And uh, I remember distinctly uh, clipping the article out of the newspaper and just filing it away in a drawer thinking I'll need it later because I never clipped anything before. I never had that reaction to something, you know, and it, and it took me 17 years of, of thinking about it before I, I wrote this book to, uh, to try and try and get my head around about it. Yeah. It was such a, such a, um, strange and unpopular and uh, uh, abrasive and uh, obscene thing that they did and that it'll always be the thing that they're remembered for more so than those great records I think and let's go ahead and hear our last KLF record real quick and this this is uh, going back in time this was recorded before the the last thing we heard but I think it sums up kind of a good valedictory for the KLF. This is the Justified and Ancient Stand by the Jams featuring Tammy Wynette, the Queen of Country Music. Stand by the Jams or Justified and Ancient featuring Tammy Wynette and the KLF. And this is a song, you know, yet another brush with disaster where they go, they decide to get Tammy Wynette, the single. They get her, they fly to America, record her, and discover she can't sing to the beat. And that 
you know, she needs a live band and she can't sing to this pre-recorded uh, time you know, click track. And but they do manage to use the technology of the time to to fit her in painstakingly, much like say Easy E was edited into the to, to the raps of UA. Um, but they, they you know create it, but and they create this beautiful video package to go with it's a big hit. When they burn the money, they don't document it well. They don't have an exciting video. They they actually missed an opportunity when they were awarding Rachel Whitehead the worst artist of the year and trying you know actually gave her a time limit like come collect this money or we're going to set it on fire. But they blinked and didn't burn the money at the yeah. time said they had which if they had that might have been sort of the ultimate media manipulation on that part and it might have been celebrated and people might have understood what they were trying to do maybe they would have understood what they were trying to do yeah but, that that would have been on the steps of the the uh, tape britain gallery in london which would have been quite a statement to to burn all the money there which is again which is something that never came off which sort of led to the, the eventual burning and yeah i agree i think if that if that had happened um, we would have viewed them quite differently. It would have um, been seen as, a, as it would have made sense to people in a way that what they did just just didn't just didn't make sense to people. And there was a brutal decade. I mean, they did a, a basically a listening tour of going around and talking and trying to explain themselves, but they couldn't explain themselves, and it just seemed like the ill will built and built. And they had really lost the money. These were not wealthy men who had burned up essentially their family fortune from their their pop career but how is it seen now what's changed about our perception of the klf and their money burning stun i thought i thought alan moore in particular has had some insights to this yeah very much so. i mean people are less appalled and at the time you know if you hear of someone burning a million pounds your immediate instinct is well if they didn't want the money they I'd have had it, you know, I, they could have given it to me, you know. So you're sort of slightly affronted because subconsciously you're thinking, that could be my money there. They burnt my million pounds. Um, that sort of passed a bit, I think. And people like Alan Moore have talked about it in terms of a magical act and uh, a lot of interesting angles on, on that way. Um, that it's, it's, I think it is seen much more now as... Uh, you know, one of the great countercultural, you know, acts of the the end of the twentieth century, and it does it does it does feel very much that sort of uh, end of an era. You know, the, the sort of uh, not catastrophic, but just the just the sort of sheer horror of of what they did uh, still has an impact. I think, um, and. There's so many artists and bands that are around at the time whose work just doesn't have that impact on people. You know, with time, I think it's been seen as um, appalling, yes, but powerful. It's a powerful, appalling, awful thing that they did. Um, and that marks them out over a generation that really weren't aiming that high that really weren't producing stuff that impacts people quite that deeply yeah and it's it's again fascinating to me to compare the money they deliberately destroyed with the money that they burned up making a movie that ended up not being released yeah absolutely it affects you very very differently i mean there was a big court case 
around Elton John uh, a few years ago when they were going into his finances and they were saying he he spent, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was hundreds of thousands of pounds on flowers, you know. Uh, but people weren't upset about him wasting his money in that way as they were upset about the KLF burning the money um, because they figured it was Elton John's money, he'd earned it, it was part of that flamboyant personality that made him such a star, let him waste his money, you know, that's, everyone, people were comfortable with that, whereas um, there was something about, it wasn't giving it away, it was like negating money, it was destroying money, money is a um, a form of exchange, it's, its purpose is to slosh around the economy, it's supposed to move and shift and uh, allow things to happen, to sort of to stop that, to, to, to destroy, to negate, to, to end the power of that money. Um, it goes against a, pretty much what we came, how we came to understand, you know, 20th century culture. It was, it was, it was slightly blasphemous. It was a blasphemous angle to it. And there are now um, quite a thriving, there is quite a thriving money-burning scene where people will burn money as a spiritual act, as a form of sacrifice. Uh, you know, most, pretty much every culture involves some form of sacrifice in its early sort of spiritual um, histories. But sacrifice is rarely fair on what's being sacrificed you know if you if you want to sacrifice a goat well go go for it but it's a bit hard on the goat you know but money burning is seen as the only form of sacrifice uh where the person doing it is also the victim where they're sort of giving away without any hope of receiving anything in return uh it's humbling in that way it's it's um it's 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 an act of forgiveness almost and so it does have this um this quite um quite profound spiritual side to it when practiced in those sort of terms absolutely and and so does the klf and so does the book my guest has been john higgs and the book is the klf chaos magic and the band who burned a million pounds which is out in a new edition tell us about the new edition real quick Oh, yes, yeah, the 10th anniversary edition, and it's coming out in a hard... And everything about this book is um, is wrong, essentially. It doesn't obey any normal rules. I put it out originally in 2012 as a self-published ebook, book um, But then it was picked up by uh, the publisher I'm still with at, at the moment, and it came out in paperback in 2013, and now finally it's coming out in hardback, so it's entirely upside down. It will be released in America um, next year. Uh, Blackstone are putting it out next year, and the audio book should be available next year as well. Um, but yeah, the, the the new edition, the tenth anniversary edition, I've I've gone back to look at it with a decade of hindsight, and I've written about thirteen thousand words of footnotes. It's like a commentary. It's like an author's commentary. It's kind of like you know on the, on the DVD when you get a director's commentary and they talk about the making of it and, and what they thought of it now, and so it's basically me looking back at this this very strange and um uh, uh you know a book that's really changed my life in very important ways and trying to make some form of sense of it is the only way i can describe those footnotes it's it's me trying to uh you know get my head around what i wrote what i created and, and the impact that it's had on people ever since um so yeah i don't know if that would work for a lot of books that sense of having a meta commentary underneath it. But 
on this one it kind of does i think i think it does and is necessary i, I think that the layers of meta and meaning and and manipulation of meaning and the way when you manipulate meaning you manipulate yourself yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, it's the old Nietzsche, Nietzsche quote about if you look into the abyss, beware, the abyss also looks into you. And the KLF definitely looked into the abyss of the music industry and, and, and modern money culture, and the abyss looked back into them. Mm. And now we can look back on that and look back on your looking back on that <laughs> in this, in this self-reference. <laughs> so, John, thanks so much for coming on the show and, and attempting to explain one of the most inexplicable musical stories we've come across in the Let It Roll journey. Well, thanks for listening, Nate. Thanks for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. And check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes Peter Benjaminson to discuss his book, The Lost Supreme, The Life of Dream Girl Florence Ballard, which kicks off a special Let Motown Roll miniseries. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.